listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo Christian thought. I'm Brendan, here with Sky. It's been a while, man. It has. I'm feeling rusty. You've been going after it. You've been <laughs> you've been going harder than ever. I'm trying. I've just been slacking the last two months. They're probably sick of me. Maybe you should just take <laughs> over from here. No way, man. No way. <laughs> We're we're here to here to hear from the ex Mormon aficionado. That's not the word I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, doing? how's that coffee? It's over a day old. Yeah, it's in my car. So. That happens. But I just need the effects. So. Well, is it working? We'll find out. I heard a rumor that you only got like four hours of sleep last night. I so, did, yeah. Yeah. Been thinking a lot about this. This is why you only got four hours of sleep. Uh, yeah, yeah. This podcast? I, I'm obsessing this over a little detail. Oh, man. Oh, I know. You got every, letter, got every letter of this thing memorized. <laughs> well, this is, uh, is going to be a new journey. So, um, at least for me, uh, Skyler, as you know, if you've been keeping up with the podcast, has done the uh, King Follett discourse and then did uh, three part series on um, really comparing an LDS view of uh, Jesus to an, a credo Christian view and, and trying to make the argument, can, can you say you believe in Jesus if you're LDS? And uh, yeah, you've been flying solo on those. Now we're back together yep. and we are really in a sense beginning our new series this year, which is uh, something that we um, started to let you as li- the listener know about at the end of last year, but we're going to be walking through the Nicene Creed for really the whole year. I mean, and probably more than that. Um, and I'm really excited about this. We have broken the creed down into uh, just phrase by phrase, and we're going to work through those uh, phrases, and we are going to really do what we believe all Christians should do, which is not to embrace the creed as their highest authority, but to test the creed up against the scripture, because the scripture is our highest authority. And insofar as that creed aligns with the scripture, that creed is an authority, uh, for us because it is derived from the scripture and uh, it really is just uh, other faithful Christians whom we admire as our brothers in Christ who looked at the scriptures and said, let's let's make it clear what this teaches um, so that we can know what the faith once for all delivered to the saints is in order to hold fast to that and make sure that we don't lose it. Uh, if you know your New Testament and um, not just the New Testament, Old Testament as well. I mean, Old Testament, you have um, just a lot of concern with Israel being clear about their distinctives uh, up against the pagan religions of their day. In the New Testament, you have all sorts of sorts of heresies that are infiltrating the church, and there are responses to those heresies. Uh, the epistles are... Uh, by and large, responses to false teaching and our encouragements for believers to hold fast to the truth, that there is an objective truth that you have to hold to in order to be saved, and uh, and they need to hold to it. And so the creeds, in, at their best, try to 
uh, clarify what those fundamental primary doctrines are, what that, you know, the old, the old uh, phrase that was used even in the early church, it was the rule of faith, right? Um, that gospel message, that thing that you've got to get right. Otherwise, you can't have confidence that you're saved. Now, could you be united to Christ and still hold to some of those false beliefs because you haven't been sanctified out of them yet? Yes. Yes, yes you can. Um, but can you knowingly, from the heart, object to those beliefs and still be saved? No. We would say no. And so that, that and there, is there some gray area there in the growth process? Sure. But the confidence that we ought to have is that when it comes to those fundamental truths, the rule of faith, the, the things that are the core of the Christian faith, um, when it comes to those things, you've got you've to gotta hold to them. And, and even if you're not uh, all there, when you first are born again, united to Christ, you, you need to be there um, as you journey along and learn and are sanctified. Because as you study the scripture, these are just the convictions that you ought to come to. Um, and there ought to be a regard for believers who come before you, um, who are smarter than you who um, worked with other Christians to uh, make these things uh, evident for us. And so we ought to be thankful for that. So that's what we're going to be doing is walking through that creed. And I think it's going to be really helpful for us to be able to give a clear understanding of um, of what we say Christianity is um, and to be able to compare that to an LDS understanding of God. And uh, what better way to do that than to go something like a creed. And so we're going to introduce that really over the next week or two by going through Joseph Smith's last public sermon that he preached, a sermon in the Grove. We're going to cover that today and look at some of the sort of foundations, uh, again, of just the LDS way of thinking and approaching some of these things. And then we're going to look at a talk by Jeffrey R. Holland, which we have referenced many times, but the talk is the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he hath sent. And the reason we're going to be walking through that talk is because it very clearly shows the anti-creedal, um, tendencies of the LDS faith, um, probably even, you could say, more than tendency. I mean, it's a it's an outright right, um, despising of the creeds, yeah. and that comes through in the uh, talk that where, where Holland basically gives the, the classic argument that you hear around here, which is that uh, Christianity, as we believe it, was invented in 325 at Nicaea, and that, uh, of course, um, that's why it needs to be. That's why the church needs to be restored. Um, is the LDS view? So yeah, you could almost say the anti-creedal impulse that they have is creedal for them. Yeah, I mean it, it is. Yeah, I mean you can't embrace the Nicene Creed and be LDS. No, right? You, that, you've got to embrace see, some sort yeah. of creed um, that is contrary to the one that we would hold fast to. Yeah, you can have them believe in Heavenly Mother. You can have some believe Michael is God. You can have some actually still hold on to blood atonement. You know what none of them will believe? The Nicene, Nicene Creed. Creed. Yeah. yeah. So that's right. <laughs> this deals with all kinds of Mormons, and that's a, another reason why I second what you said on how useful it is in this context. Yep. So maybe we ought to just uh, begin all this by reading the Nicene Creed out loud, since that's where we're going to be going. And uh, I am just pulling up the first edition of it that I see. Usually I'd bring a book that I have, but let's go from the CRC. They, they should be close, right? 
their website. So here's the Nicene Creed for you. And again, we're going to be walking through this line by line over the next, what was it, like 53 weeks, I think, is what we, like what we have planned. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life of the world to come. Amen. There it is. So that's going to be our content. And of course, as we break it down line by line, we're going to be uh, really saying, okay, what is the Christian claim? We believe in one God. What, what is that claim coming from? And, and does it hold up biblically? And of course, that gets right to the heart of the sermon in the Grove that we're going to be looking at today. So Skylar, do you want to just set this up for us a little bit and kind of give us the context of this sermon in the Grove? What's what's the environment which is being um, given and uh, what point in time is this occurring within Joseph Smith's life, which I already mentioned in passing, but just kind of fill out that context for us briefly. Absolutely. For those who want a little bit more extended um, edition of this, the King Follett series, basically sets up the same context. So this is um, just a few months later, June 16th, 1844. And in that same, even the same place, in the grove east of the temple, uh, the half-built Nauvoo temple, this, um, at least following B.H. Roberts' comprehensive history, um, is the last public sermon Joseph Smith will give before he is shot and killed June 27th. And though, uh, to just make sure some out there may know, he does give a last kind of speech to the Nauvoo Legion, this kind of uh, militia group that he had to compete with the U.S. Army. But um, he, uh, but that wasn't a sermon necessarily um, as prophet, even if some might see it as prophetic. So this is, I think, very much an extension and elaboration upon the this the doctrine that he outlines in the King Follett discourse. Yeah. So the, in this meeting, right, they had a prayer by Bishop Newell K. Whitney. They sing a song called Mortals Awake, and that's that's setting up for this sermon. Yeah. All right. So we are going to have a wonderful uh, artificial intelligence voice <laughs> read mm-hmm. this for us, and we will just kind of go section by section basically through this and make comments as we go throughout. So you're going to hear um, the uh, the talk itself read in its entirety as we work through this, and so you can just uh, imagine Joseph Smith himself uh, standing before a uh, large congregation in the rain 
and uh, and giving this, which was his last public sermon. So uh, let's jump into it. President Joseph Smith read the third chapter of Revelation and took for his text first chapter, sixth verse, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It is altogether correct in the translation. Now, you know that of late some malicious and corrupt men have sprung up and apostatized from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and they declare that the prophet believes in a plurality of gods, and, lo and behold, we have discovered a very great secret, they cry. The prophet says there are many gods, and this proves that he has fallen. It has been my intention for a long time to take up this subject and lay it clearly before the people, and show what my faith is in relation to this interesting matter. I have contemplated the saying of Jesus, Luke 17th chapter, 26th verse, and as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. And if it does rain, I'll preach this doctrine, for the truth shall be preached. So there's your introduction. Um, yeah, obviously, we're already seeing some issues here. If you've been with us as we've been walking through um, some of the history, which, of course, that's uh, Schuyler's bread and butter, is digging into the history of LDS uh, thought and even just the events that are surrounding, um, surrounding the LDS faith, uh, you know, if you've been with us, that uh, the claim that um, Joseph Smith has uh, been teaching this for a long time is really something, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you want to comment on anything from that first section there, Skylar. Absolutely. I think the first thing to point out is the irony, even in what he reads from Revelation 1.6. Let me just read this. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father. In the Joseph Smith translation, it doesn't have that. So he he says it's altogether correct in the translation. Right. Uh, not mentioning that, well, in your translation, you changed it. You put a comma unto God, right, uh, with a comma. So you can actually see it in the appendix of a quad where he, he fixed it yep. um, to God, comma, his father. Yeah. I think it's also notable that at the forefront of his mind here, he is addressing um, issues that are coming because people who have apostatized from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are making these claims about him. So there's people that have left the church, and they're the ones who are kind of going public, saying the prophet's saying there's many gods, and that proves that he's fallen. So all of this is going to be a rebuttal against these people who have left Joseph Smith and are now, it seems in his mind, very clearly enemies of his. And so he's going to address publicly things that they're bringing up to him. And um, I don't even know the exact context of that, but obviously we do know that many people in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in those early days did leave the movement because there were doctrines that were being taught that they just became uncomfortable with. And this was, this was clearly one of them. So, um, so it's going to be interesting to see how does he respond to this group? What are some of the things that he's going to say about them, even as we go through this talk? So any other things on this before we move uh, to the next one? Yes. Yeah, so one thing that's interesting to note, just it's, it's more true than he, I think is even consciously aware when he says, let me show what my faith is. Yeah. And I mean, how many, how many times throughout the year have we pointed out really Mormonism is the faith of a man. Yeah. It is the faith of one man. 
ultimately Joseph Smith, and then everything else is kind of a footnote on what he taught. Yeah. And so it's just interesting that it's conscious awareness, but just once again, the last line of the section we just heard, right? I'll preach this doctrine. So yeah. this is doctrine and for the truth. So this is doctrine and the truth about the plurality of gods, that there is not only one God. Yeah. And just one of the practical benefits of us using um, uh, artificial intelligence program to read this off is, is uh, we're not going to be putting our own uh, tone into this. Right. But I would just say, listen, listen to how contentious he is. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I mean, it'll come across just when it's being read by a program. Um, and that just says something, given that the modern, um, you know, the, the current air uh, in uh, an LDS um, culture is we shouldn't ever be contentious. But but man, Joseph Smith, he's one of the most contentious guys you, you would have ever met. Right. And that's going to come through. And also just notice how much um, how much there there's a focus on him. And, uh, you know, if, uh, just, just even some, what we would, what we would say concerningly, uh, some, some narcissistic kind of tendencies of like, you have to listen to me. Um, and, uh, I've got it all figured out and, um, you know, to leave me is to lose yourself essentially. Um, just, just notice all those things happening in the, uh, undertone here. So, all right, let's go to the next section here. Plurality of gods. I will plurality of gods. I will preach on the plurality of gods. I have selected this text for that express purpose. I wish to declare I have always and in all congregations when I have preached on the subject of the deity, it has been the plurality of gods. Eyes has been preached by the elders for 15 years. I have always declared God to be a distinct personage. Jesus Christ a separate and distinct personage from God the Father. And the Holy Ghost was a distinct personage and a spirit. And these three constitute three distinct personages and three gods. If this is in accordance with the New Testament, lo and behold, we have three gods anyhow, and they are plural, and who can contradict it? Our text says, And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. The apostles have discovered that there were gods above, for John says, God was the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. My object was to preach the scriptures, and preach the doctrine they contain, there being a God above, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I am bold to declare I have taught all the stronger doctrines in public than in private. John was one of the men, and apostles declare they were made kings and priests unto God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It reads just so in the Revelation. Hence the doctrine of a plurality of gods is as prominent in the Bible as any other doctrine. It is all over the face of the Bible. It stands beyond the power of controversy. A wayfaring man, though a fool, need not err therein. Paul says there are gods many and lords many. I want to set it forth in a plain and simple manner. But to us, there is but one God. That is pertaining to us, and he is in all and through all. But if Joseph Smith says there are gods many and lords many, they cry, away with him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Mankind verily say that the scriptures are with them. Search the scriptures, for they testify of things that these apostates would gravely pronounce blasphemy. Paul, if Joseph Smith is a blasphemer, you are. I say there are gods many and lords many, but to us only one, and we are to be in subjection to that one. And no man can limit the bounds or the eternal existence of eternal time. Hath he beheld the eternal world, 
and is he authorized to say that there is only one God? He makes himself a fool if he thinks or says so, and there is an end of his career or progress in knowledge. He cannot obtain all knowledge, for he has sealed up the gate to it. Script. All right. That's our next section there. So that yeah. is him very clearly laying out the purpose of this sermon, which is to make the claim, as he says, alongside of the rest of the Bible, that there are many gods, many lords, that there are at least three gods. Uh, of course, God being a distinct personage, Jesus Christ, a separate and distinct personage from God, the Father and the Holy Ghost, a third and distinct personage, and a spirit. So three distinct personages, and Joseph Smith says, that's three gods. Um, fill us in on what else we need to see here, Skylar. Yeah, for sure. So some things that came to my mind as I'm listening to this is, first, his point that I have, quote, I have always and in all congregations when I have preached on the subject of the deity, it has been the plurality of gods. Yeah. How about um, in the Book of Mormon, where the title page calls Jesus the eternal God? We've we've looked at the fact that the Book of Mormon is monotheistic. It's not the Trinity, but it is monotheistic. Yeah. The, being a definite article. The, yeah, exactly, right? exactly. The eternal God. Yeah, Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God. Singular, yeah. And um, in D&C 20, which was the Articles of Covenants, which was uh, published in uh, April 19th, 1831 in the Painesville Telegraph, uh, as the Mormon Creed, it says, Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost is one God, infinite and eternal without end. This is like the founding document of the LDS Church. Um, DNC 20, if you know the history behind it. Um, how about the lectures on faith, which we've looked at, right? Where in the fifth lecture, which used to be the doctrine and the doctrine and covenants, right? It was the doctrine section until, and we looked at that um, last year, um, where... It says the Father is a personage of spirit, glory, and power, and the Son, right, is a personage of tabernacle. Okay, so you, you all right, you're starting to see some development happen there, um, but and of course, just keep reading, and you'll see what he, what the the doctrine used to teach the Holy Ghost was. So, no, he has not been. How how many years did he say? Um, Fifteen years. So he's yep. he's dating it to around the time of the founding of the LDS Church. And that's just not true. How about this? Um, and I, I, we've, we've brought him up. We've mostly brought up his brother. Um, but second to Joseph Smith in this time, in terms of influence on Mormon theology, would, would be Parley Pratt, right? The older brother of Orson Pratt. And um, just as an example, he, his 1837, A Voice of Warning, um, had 30 editions by the year 1900. Um, it was esteemed along with the Pearl of Great Price. <laughs> I mean, we have a newspaper uh, from the Deseret News decades later saying, hey, these are the books you need to read. And I think the first two or two of the first three, something like that, were Parley Pratt books. Um, and, of course, we've looked at one of his most glaring false prophecies in the False Prophecies episode right, that, you know, by 1888, these things would happen, or else the Book of Mormon is not true. We're still waiting. Well, he wrote this. Why, why do I say that? Well, he wrote, <laughs> he wrote this. Um, first, in 1837, in that Voice of Warning book, he, he speaks of 
the gospel, first off, or maybe I should frame the book. If you, if you read A Voice of Warning, the first half is a literal interpretation of apocalyptic. So he was very leery of anyone that would look at Revelation and not treat it, in his view, literally. Um, and predicted the gathering of Judah, the lost ten tribes, the judgment to come against the Gentiles, and the fallen church, the fallen Christians, Babylon or whatever. The second half of the book, he, he then goes to the Book of Mormon. And uh, talks about prophecies there and the redemption of the, quote, red men of the forest, his phrase, and the building of Zion, the second coming is near, and the gospel's being proclaimed, quote, once more for the last time. And he defines the gospel as this, once again, 1837, believe on the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of all your ungodly deeds, and come forth and be baptized by immersion in water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, in order that you may be filled with the Holy Ghost. Okay, so it's still... Sounds fairly evangelically, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then we fast forward, 1840. So this is four years prior to this, roughly. He publishes um, a, a pamphlet called An Answer to Mr. William Hewitt's Tract. Okay, This is how he talks about God. Whoever reads our books or hears us preach knows that we believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost as one God. Eight, 15 years, the elders have been preaching this? How about four years before your right-hand man doctrinally mm-hmm. who did? I, I should have been bringing him up more. He probably contributed more than anyone else to Mormon cosmology, the materialism of Mormonism and of the development and progress of spirits. And what does he say in 1840 that they believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost as one God? Quote, that the Son has flesh and bones and that the Father is spirit. Once again, we're not even to the DNC section where... You know, it talks of the father having, yeah. you know, flesh and bones as tangible as any man's. But we would inform Mr. H that a personage of spirit has its organized formation, its body and parts, its individual identity, its eyes, mouth, ears, etc., and that it is in the image or likeness of the temporal body, although not composed of such gross materials as flesh and bones. Hence, it is said that Jesus is the express image of his, the father's person. Um, in 1845, Parley Pratt wrote a proclamation of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, in which he starts it with the term, Great Jehovah Elohim. So <laughs> look at that. He combines Jehovah and Elohim. This is 1845. Mm-hmm. This is even after this. And then just to bring it up, not to continue this tour, yeah. but just to show, remember, once you get to the temples in Utah, and you have sermons from Brigham, and Heber C and others talking of Elohim, Yah, you know, Yahovah or you know, uh, Jehovah and Michael. Remember what was being taught by Brigham, though you know, some Orson pushing back, resisting to that for sure. But what was being taught by Brigham is that Michael was Jesus Christ's father. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing to notice, even in this section where he talks of three gods, right? Three distinct personages. Remember, the whole point was that God has a father. Yeah. <laughs> so there's already four. I don't know why he limits it to three. And as we continue, he keeps saying, right, pertaining to us, there's only which one. Right. Because Brigham Young said that one was Michael. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there I mean, right there is, uh, is a contradiction. A contradiction, right? Within his thinking, he he yes. has just made clear for everyone that there's three gods. Yes, and then he says, pertaining to us, there's one. So yeah, well, well, it's like <laughs> that. I mean, clearly, that means you don't worship Jesus as God. Right. You don't worship the Holy Spirit as God. Mm-hmm. You only worship the uh, Father as God. Right. Would I mean would be the deduction that you'd have to come to from Joseph Smith's way of thinking? Exactly, and you can kind of see how 
you know, if you still don't have the clear thing that's there today in the current LDS system where Elohim is considered the father and Jehovah is considered the son, Jesus, well, <laughs> that distinction wasn't clearly here, at least with Parley P. Pratt and Brigham Young. I would say pretty key figures doctrinally. And this is, this is um, and once again, Mark 12, um, what is Jesus? Jesus is asked, what's the most important commandment? And he starts with the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Mm-hmm. So he can say, oh, it's all over the Bible. It's all over the New Testament, all these things. What about Jesus? Right here, Mark 12. Yeah. Found, affirming the foundational creed of Israel, which is an affirmation that the Lord God, he alone exists and is alone the creator. And we see that throughout. He, he also says here um, that I am bold to declare I have taught all the strong doctrines publicly and always teach stronger doctrines in public than in private. That's objectively not true, right? What is he doing in private? Spiritual wifery, polyandry, polygamy, the temple, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. He's, he's doing an endowment for key people and their wives, Um. He's right. I mean, it's that's just objectively not true. He, he's uh, according to some of the women, he's telling them they were married in previous lives. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just not true that he teaches the strong doctrines publicly. Yep. This is, yeah, I don't know. There's just no way to. Uh, I, mean, I, I don't know. Yeah. The culture of secrecy, and this, and this is one thing we'll get to when we kind of take a tour down the irony of Mormon creeds a little bit here and there. But the, the Mormon creed, this kind of joke, always started with mind your own business. And it, it just, I actually think it's a great insight into LDS, well, Mormon culture, and I think some of it lingers in LDS culture, of secrecy, yeah. of the most important things you don't say or you don't talk about unless you're with other people who have committed to the same things in the same way. Yeah. So... But yeah, I mean, he's bold, you know, pretty bald-faced and saying, hence the doctrine of a plurality of gods is as prominent in the Bible as any other doctrine. Once again, what do you do with the Shema? And what do you do with Jesus saying it's the most important commandment? So, you know, and then what does he say? Paul, if Joseph Smith is a blasphemer, you are. It is amazing, too, to think of the, the context of the apostasy from within Mormonism at this point, that there still was at least enough of an impulse toward monotheism that he's getting resistance. And we see this with a lot of the offshoots, the other Mormon branches that I haven't focused that much on, um, where sometimes they will pair this back and not, not teach this. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, once again, he wants to say it's really, it's all over the Bible, but what does he ultimately lean into? Uh, he, here's this kind of mocking question. Hath he beheld the eternal world? And is he authorized to say that there is only one God? He's leaning into his revelations. So ultimately, it doesn't does it matter what the Bible teaches or not. You're going to see him go back and forth. Yeah, uh, when he he thinks he can use the Bible to promote what he sees as the truth anyway, he will use it, and if not, he will discard it and yeah. say it's their interpretation. Yep, and he's I mean he's missing the the forest for the trees. I mean even in the text that he's dealing with, um, he's missing the the point of the text as a whole. Um, and is trying to draw out the, the this own his own theology out of this one 
uh, little turn of a, of a phrase, priest to his God and father. Um, you know, and he's trying to make, of course, this argument that, well, uh, clearly Jesus is saying that that the father is his God, and so he must be a, a separate God. And um, and that's, I mean, that's the way that he's choosing to read the text. But, you know, if you just kind of zoom out and look at the whole context of the text and what's going on here, uh, John is presenting the um, work of Jesus as being the means by which the church, which is suffering under great persecution, uh, can have confidence that um, that they are dwelling in his presence here and now on earth and will be delivered by Jesus and brought into the presence of God the Father on the last day. And so Jesus is our representative, our Messiah, who goes before us and who makes the way for us to have confidence that though we suffer now, this is all temporary. He's coming in the clouds. He's going to bring us into the presence of God the Father um, as our you know, perfect representative man who is also our God. And he's tying those things both, the dual nature, the, the, the human and the uh, divine nature of Christ are seen both here in this text. Um, and even into verse 8, he gets into, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. That's talking about Jesus, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. And so this is, again, where we get our Trinitarian theology, is that you do see um, you do see a, a plurality, but it's not the kind of plurality that Joseph Smith is trying to say that it is. It's Jesus being included into the the divine identity of a Jewish way of thinking, which is a monotheism. And uh, and then the other text that he just loosely throws out there is 1 Corinthians 8. And let me just read this out loud for us so that we can see the context of this. Paul says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possesses knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something he does not uh, or he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Now, this is the part right here that Smith's pulling it from. Therefore, as to eating foods uh, offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. Okay, so here's what Paul's saying. Food offered to idols, uh, should this be a big deal to you Christians? And we know an idol has no real existence in that, listen to this, there is no God but one. <laughs> Is what Paul says. I mean, you're going to be more explicit. We know that there is no God but one. That's the context that Smith is pulling this this uh, verse out of. For although there are many so-called gods, that's the way that ESV chooses to translate this, uh, though there are, are many maybe so-called gods in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many quote-unquote gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You do start to get that uh, phrasing in the New Testament um, as a way of upholding the oneness of God, one God, one Lord. They are one in this shared uh, divine identity. And of course, as time moves on, the church begins to look at these scriptures and to, de to determine from them uh, what we now call the doctrine of the Trinity. But that's, of course, implicitly in the text. It's just working the text out over time.
Yeah. But yes. but just to point out that the very context, and we could have read that in the King James, and there wouldn't be that much of a difference either. Um, but the whole context is Paul saying there is no God but one. And so why are you getting so flustered about eating food sacrificed to idols that we know are no idols at all, right? Um, there's many quote-unquote gods and lords, but we know that there's one one God who created the heavens and the earth, Um you know, so so all you got to do is you look at the text, and you can just see how he is just—he's not really preaching the text; he's just using it to do what you just said, which is kind of serve his own purposes. Right, and and once again, knowing that you look at Genesis one one, you look at Nehemiah, you look at—I mean, there's so many places in the Old Testament where the the feature of the one God is the Creator of all things. What side of the line is the one Lord on? Who's the Lord? Remember, once again, the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord, your God, right, is one, right? One God, one Lord. So we have distinction of persons, unity of being. We're already right there, and Jesus is on the creator side of the line. So, yeah, I mean, he's going to come back to this passage as well, if I'm not mistaken. But the point is, even to the extent to which there are demonic entities that are some of the gods of the nations or whatever. Correct, yep. He's, he's not saying for us, meaning they're on the same level. That's right. He's saying for us, we recognize there's one God that even those demons are subject to. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so let's get to the next section. Uh, play it for us here. Some say I do not interpret the scripture the same as they do. They say it means the heathen's gods. Paul says there are gods many and lords many, and that makes a plurality of gods in spite of the whims of all men. Without a revelation, I am no going to give them the knowledge of the God of heaven. You know and I testify that Paul had no allusion to the heathen gods. I have it from God, and get over it if you can. I have a witness of the Holy Ghost, and a testimony that Paul had no allusion to the heathen gods in the text. I will show from the Hebrew Bible that I am correct, and the first word shows a plurality of gods and I want the apostates and learned men to come here and prove to the contrary, if they can. An unlearned boy must give you a little Hebrew. Bereshite barau elohim eight oshamayin vahau arates, rendered by King James's translators, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. I want to analyze the word bereshite. Rosh, the head, sheet, a grammatical termination. The baith was not originally put there when the inspired man wrote it, but it has been since added by an old Jew. Barau signifies to bring forth Elohim is from the word Eloi, God, in the singular number, and by adding the word Haim, it renders it gods. It read first, in the beginning the head of the gods brought forth the gods, or, as other have translated it, the head of the gods called the gods together. I want to show a little learning as well as other fools. The head god organized the heavens and the earth. I defy all the world to refute me. In the beginning the heads of the gods organized the heavens and the earth. Now the learned priests and the people rage, and the heathen imagine a vain thing. If we pursue the Hebrew text further, it reads, Bereshite barau Elohim eight, Aushamayin vihau orates. The head one of the gods said, Let us make a man in our own image. I once asked a learned Jew, if the Hebrew language compels us to render all words ending in Haim in the plural, why not render the first Elohim plural? He replied, that is the rule with few exceptions, but in this case it would ruin the Bible. He acknowledged I was right. I came here to investigate these things precisely as I believe them. 
hear and judge for yourselves, and if you go away satisfied, well and good. In the very beginning the Bible shows there is a plurality of gods beyond the power of refutation. It is a great subject I am dwelling on. The word Elohim ought to be in the plural, all the way through, gods. The heads of the gods appointed one god for us, and when you take that view of the subject, it sets one free to see all the beauty, holiness, and perfection of the gods. All I want is to get the simple, naked truth, and the whole truth. Many men say there is one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are only one God. I say that is a strange God anyhow, three in one, and one in three. It is a curious organization. Father, I pray not for the world, but I pray for them which Thou hast given me. Holy Father, keep through Thine own name those whom Thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. All are to be crammed into one God, according to sectarianism. It would make the biggest God in all the world. He would be a wonderfully big God. He would be a giant or a monster. I want to read the text to you myself. I am agreed with the Father and the Father is agreed with me. And we are agreed as one. The Greek shows that it should be agreed. Father, I pray for them which thou hast given me out of the world, and not for those alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be agreed, as thou, Father, are with me and I with thee, that they also may be agreed with us, and all come to dwell in unity, and in all the glory and everlasting burnings of the gods, and then we shall see as we are seen, and be as our God and he as his Father. I want to reason a little on this subject. I learned it by translating the papyrus, which is now in my house. All right, we'll stop it there. There's uh, plenty to comment on in that section. So, uh, yeah, you heard it. So he is trying to give somewhat of a scriptural um, argument. He is uh, really playing with the word Elohim as being the main uh, point of his argument. And we brought this up, I want to say in passing, at least on the podcast before, that uh, he's done this to try to prove a plurality of gods. But uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see why that doesn't hold up here in just a minute. But Skylar, why don't you take us through just whatever comments you want to take um, here, and then we'll go from there. Yes, I I think one thing too, in between the two sections, the last line, and then heading into the one we just listened to. One thing to point out too, and this will come out as we go through later on, um, some of the quotes on Creed specifically from Joseph Smith, he sees them as a barrier to his open-mindedness. He sees them as a gate to shut down knowledge and thinking, um, <laughs> right? Yeah. Instead of a, a means of protecting the faith of the Bible, right? Revealed by the triune God. Um, and uh, once again, I hope the listener caught it, right? He says here, without a revelation, I'm not going to give them the knowledge of the God of heaven, right? So once again, I can give revelation, so should you, you know, obviously you don't get it or else you'd agree with me. Right. Um, and then, of course, yeah, he, he says in here that he looks at the first verse in the Hebrew um, and says, of course, one part of it that he can't make work at all. He says an old Jew, not a new Jew, an old Jew added. And once again, that's, that's <laughs> to think of the Bible as being able to be changed by just someone changing a word. You also are making a comment about it being passed down and translated through the ages. Um, I mean, that's a mighty claim to be making without any evidence. But of course, it doesn't agree with them, so there must be evidence for it somewhere, even if it's hiding. 
So he, he then says this word has to always be rendered God's. That's stunning. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> so the English word sheep or the English word deer, how do we know if it's singular or plural? Right. It's interesting. He's going to cite Psalm 82 later uh, through John 10. In the first verse, you actually have a plural and a singular in the same verse. Here's right? my question, though. What about the word moose? Moose. <laughs> I, mean, I bet there's a bunch of these, you know, <laughs> where it's the, the, the way you know is like the sheep is lost. The sheep are lost. Right. I hit a deer. I saw the deer. It's a little more ambiguous. It's, it's about the whether it's a singular plural verb form attached to the subject. Yeah. So like this, this isn't how languages work. And in fact, you can see it even there where he says the word I'm not the, right, not the, what is it, uh, the, of the continental stem, is it? Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I don't know Hebrew either, but I know enough to know this is um, not accurate at all. And so, no, it, it is not true, this. But notice, this is his translation. This came out in the King Follett series as well. In the beginning, the head of the gods brought forth the gods, or the head of the gods called the gods together. And, and so, in in. Right here, he then goes immediately into uh, organizing the heavens of the earth, by which he doesn't say, but by which he means this set of heavens and, and earths, maybe plural on the second. So a denial of creation ex nihilo as well. Yeah. Right. So different. You get rid of monotheism. You got to get rid of creation ex nihilo to make it work. And um, and then of course he. This is the irony, right? He says that the. Um, Paul has not in mind the heathen gods. If you look at the context, it's about animals that are sacrificed literally to the pagan gods. So even if you assume real, some sort of demonic fallen angel status to whatever's behind Greek religion or anywhere else, um, even if you assume that, they are the heathen gods. Like yeah. it's not. <laughs> but what's ironic then, then he turns around, he brings polytheism supposedly into the one true church of Jesus. And then projects and calls the learned priests and the people rage and the heathen. He then redefines the heathen as the monotheists. Don't, don't miss that. The heathen are the monotheists. Mm-hmm. So he keeps going into the image status. So this is going to affect, this is not, you know, people say, oh, this is a fringe topic, shelf talk. No, no, no. This is essential. Who's God? Who's man? What's the world? <laughs> right. He then goes into what it is. His translation of the verse, what is it, 27, Genesis one twenty seven, The head one of the gods said, let us, right to the other gods, make a man in our own image. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, he, he tells this story of, oh, yeah, this Jew, he asked him, you know, why don't you translate it plural? Because we all know Hebrew, if it's a plural ending, it must be a plural. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and he says, of course, it would ruin the Bible. Who knows if that story is true? So it, it beyond the power of refutation... Beyond the power of refutation, the Shema, Mark 12, say nothing of Paul. We looked at James. This was point one in my Can LDS Believe Jesus series, that God is one. And no, it ought to be plural all the way through. And then what is he, where does he position himself rhetorically, which is why I brought up the open-minded point at the beginning of this segment. All I want to get is the simple naked truth. See, heretics always say that. Yep. And of course, I really, I, I'm not sure heretic's the right word. Because at this point, this is so foreign, I don't think it's heresy. Yeah, Arius is a heretic. This is more akin to Hinduism, where it's just a completely different category. 
but they always position themselves as, well, I want the truth. You're, you're bound by creeds. I'm the free thinking man. I'm yeah. the individualist. I'm the Thoreau. You're right. Right. And uh, where a fresh outpouring of the spirit comes through me. Um, he then mocks the Trinity. And this is a point that now will be very visceral uh, for the listener, I hope, because if you look at the, how about the Book of Mormon? So he's mocking this idea that they would be one. And, um, of course, we covered the Book of Mormon does not have the Trinity. Um, it's a form of modalism, which is a range of views. There's not just one kind of modalism, but that confuses the persons. That's what's funny. He's like, I've always been consistent on this. How about in your text that you claim to translate through the magic rock of an ancient white Native American civilization that there's no evidence for, in spite of videos recently to the contrary? Notwithstanding, he says, they are one God, yea, the very eternal Father of heaven and the earth. And he even um, speaks of the Son being the Father. <laughs> so, and he tries to import it in his JST into Luke as well. So, what about that view? So, he goes from promoting a heresy of the Trinity to rejecting a heresy of the Trinity. Because as those who know the Nicene Creed, we distinguish the substance of the one God and the persons that are the one God, right? So we, it's not, pointing out distinctions between Father and Son, it's actually Joseph Smith who confuses that early on. It's not us. It's not our creed. And the creed is helped, meant to protect that. And he mocks it. And then, you know, when you first reached out to me to do this podcast, this was the passage that immediately came to mind. Do you remember oh, what, yeah. I, what I was thinking? Oh, we were thinking of titles, right? And I wanted to say Proud Sons of the Monster. Yeah. And th this is where it comes from. Joseph Smith does not just say, um, I can see what you mean, but I have revelations and I disagree. No, what does he do? He mocks the triune God of Scripture. Mm -hmm. So I want whoever's listening, LDS Christian, I want you to hear that. He's mocking the Christian God. So, so when they think we're being mean by making a line clear, wait, wait a second. So Joseph can hit, but we can't defend ourselves. Yeah. But that's being contentious. It brings out this double standard that is embodied in this. How many times does Joseph talk about, I'm the victim, I'm the nice one? And then when he takes shots, it's okay. You just can't, you know, no one can attack him. Poor, poor Joseph here. Then he goes on and, um, right, he quotes John, uh, including John 10, which is interesting. Once again, if you know that we distinguish Father, Son, and Spirit, it's not, you know, when he says, I and my Father, we are one. The, the personal pronouns there are not a problem for <laughs> creedal Christians. Uh, we distinguish the persons. The question is, is there one God? But then he goes into this, and this is Joseph Smith at his most poetic, mm -hmm. right? All come to dwell in unity, and he says this, and in all the glory and everlasting burnings of the gods. And if you've heard the King Follett series, you, he talks about that, that we have to be, learn to become gods ourselves, see it insofar as you can become a savior. And the idea is that ultimately you will... Be, have a body that can withstand everlasting burnings of the gods. And then he says, and then we shall see as we are seen, which talk about using that John language, right? And says what? And be as our God and he and his father. Yep. So now we have, we already had it, but there's explicit, more explicitly four gods at least, right? In this. And then he says, um, See, I already forgot where he ended it. What what was the last word? Yeah, so it's right after his portion on making the argument that the Greek should show that it's agreed and not one. Gotcha. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, and okay. then he, and then he gets into the testimony concerning Abraham. Will be in the next section. Okay, where we'll pick up. So okay, yeah. So um, those are those are some good notes. I yeah, more more could be said there. Um, I will say there there's I mean there's a lot of good work done on the word Elohim that you should check out if you're curious. But the traditional understanding of the word Elohim is that the usage of the word, which of course is what you're getting at, is uh, when you're looking at words, you need to look at the context, understand how the word itself is being used. That's how you determine its meaning, um, not just on like a bare definition of whatever you want it to say. You got to understand the context. And it was very common for the word Elohim to be used um, in reference to someone who was greater than all the rest. And so um, this has been referred to as a plural of majesty. So the reason that it has a plural form in these places is because it is communicating to the audience that this God is greater than all of the others, uh, the other entities or whatever, however you want to put that. And in fact, there's other places where this uh, this word is even used in terms of uh, toward human rulers, and there's one particular usage I can't remember the exact reference right now, but it's talking about King David, and it's referring to him as the the greatest king, the the king over all the other kings, and it uses this plural form, and so it's a it's a intentional usage of the language to communicate the majesty of God, as is what's going on there. It's not to communicate that there's multiple entities that are part of whatever it's talking about, it's saying that it, it's a way of, uh, of referencing the greatness of the God that is the God of the Jews um, up against even just the other gods of the nations, for example, um, which are uh, at best d- demonic entities, um, as you see that theology develop throughout the, the Bible. So let that be said. All right, let's keep moving because we technically are only six minutes into this 13-minute uh, talk. So, <laughs> But I think that was the meat of it, what we just now touched on. So here we go. Abraham's reasoning. I learned a testimony concerning Abraham, and he reasoned concerning the God of heaven. In order to do that, said he, suppose we have two facts, that supposes another fact may exist, two men on the earth, one wise than the other, would logically show that another who is wiser than the wisest may exist. Intelligences exist one above another, so that there is no end to them. If Abraham reasoned thus, if Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and John discovered that God the Father of Jesus Christ had a father, you may suppose that he had a father also. Where was there ever a son without a father? And where was there ever a father without first being a son? Whenever did a tree or anything spring into existence without a progenitor? And everything comes in this way. Paul says that which is earthly is in the likeness of that which is heavenly. Hence, if Jesus had a father, can we not believe that he had a father also? I despise the idea of being scared to death at such a doctrine, for the Bible is full of it. I want you to pay particular attention to what I am saying. Jesus said that the Father wrought precisely in the same way as his Father had done before him, as the Father had done before. He laid down his life and took it up the same as his Father had done before. He did as he was sent, to lay down his life and take it up again, and then was committed unto him the keys. I know it is good reasoning. Okay, so that's I, you, you got into that a little bit already in that that uh, section, but uh, yeah, you, you hear Smith saying that um, 
Jesus came into the world in the same way that any person who's a son comes into the world as a father and the father has a father before him. And he uses this illustration. When did ever a tree spring into existence without a progenitor? And, uh, well, yeah. So clearly there's a very naturalistic understanding of everything in the world. And again, we've touched on this over and over again, but one of the biggest differences between an LDS way of thinking and a historic Christian way of thinking is the creator creation distinction that we do not, we do not ever stretch to, to try to uh, force comparisons between the creation and the one who is the creator. The whole point is that God is not like us, um, that he is holy, 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 that he is set apart from us. He is totally other than us, and we are part of his creation. And so I know some of the confusion comes in here because uh, of a misunderstanding of the nature of the incarnation and the dual nature of Christ. Um, and that really is the, I think, the uh the crux of a lot of the misunderstandings is you see Jesus as this man. Well, you know, let's explain that in human terms, but then you can't ever go past that in an LDS way of thinking. You just have to kind of physicalize everything um, beyond Jesus and his preexistence in order to kind of rationalize, I guess, the way that it works for us is to make it just this comparison of, uh, you know, what the Father did, that's what Jesus did, and that's what we are supposed to do, um, rather than recognizing a holy, righteous God who's not like us, who um, has sent his Son into the world to take on flesh, to assume human flesh, um, in order to accomplish our salvation so that we, as creation, can be restored in relationship to the Creator. That's not to say that we are ever going to become the same as him in his essence, because he is fundamentally different as the Creator God. That's part of, it. in fact, what the word Elohim in the in that plural sense is trying to communicate um, is that God is not like us. And so um, anyway, what, what else do you have on that? Yeah. Well, I just along with that, if it's a pattern of father sons becoming like their, I should say parent children becoming like their parents, because he doesn't say the woman part, but I mean, even as um, you know, early as I think it's 1844, 1845, you have one of the hymn, writers of Mormonism saying, oh, Mormonism, exclamation point, thy father is God, thy mother is the queen of heaven. So right, uh, there was a recognition even pretty early on that that means there's a at least one heavenly mother. And of course, as we know, really mothers, because you, I mean, if you, if you look at the system, you need at least, you need the mother of your son that's going to be the savior of this phase of existence to be one of your wives or else it would be adultery, right? So, yeah. so one of your daughters has to be your wife. So how many worlds do you have? How many, right? So you can kind of see that the logic comes right out of this. But notice, what is the closest thing to a God in the system is the pattern. So it, it makes the, the ruling structure, the, the pattern of the cosmos for which there is no explanation, right? It, it's... It's, it's interesting. We, we say that everything is ultimately rational, but we as finite creatures cannot comprehend it. But we think because God condescends to us, we have real, even if not complete knowledge. They make everything rationalistic in a way that they can comprehend and push that to the side so that ultimately the cosmos is irrational. Yeah. There's no reason for anything, ultimately. Yeah. It's just the pattern and you have to follow it, especially if you want to become like your parents. So that's just one angle to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but it, notice that's multiple lives. <laughs> yeah. If the father did what Jesus did for a wor- set of worlds like this for his father, and this is the pattern, yep. um, sorry, that's multiple lives. Yep. So that is Mormonism. Um, yeah. So if you have to be like Jesus, according to Joseph Smith, what do you have to do? That's a, you know, and listen to the Colin interview, and you'll see that ultimately you boil down deep Mormon doctrine to any form. There's got to be some form of MMP, multiple mortal probations, uh, which is Mormon reincarnation, even if they won't use the word. Now, I want to point out, um, he says he's translated the papyrus, and that's ironic, right? Because he's already lecturing us on Hebrew and apparently Greek. He doesn't know either of these languages. Uh, for his JST, he's not, he's not analyzing that. He's analyzing Adam Clark, a Methodist scholar at the time, his Bible commentary, who, who, Adam Clark knowing the languages. Um, he doesn't know Egyptian either. <laughs> In fact, um, you hear the language of the Egyptians, you hear the term Reformed Egyptian. Um, Reformed Egyptian doesn't exist. Like it, it actually it literally doesn't exist as a language. And this is what you know, Joseph Smith is claiming to translate through a magic stone, and a hat. So yeah. he, see the irony here. He's lecturing us for not knowing language. But at the end of the day, what is he using to so-called translate? Yep. You have to redefine every single one of these words. Translate doesn't mean translate. That is the apologetic method going forward. Yeah. That's the Richard Bushman's. That's the right. Is to say, well, translate can have this broader meaning of right where this these these the medium is the catalyst for you know. Think about that. This is <laughs> this is supposedly on par with the Bible, if not superior to it. Mm-hmm. I'll just point out for those who want to. A, a book that will just show the plain truth that um, I think the, the problem with the book of Abraham, why it's so devastating is that we actually can analyze an original, yeah. right? With the gold plates, they're gone with, you know, there's, there's always an out for him. Mm-hmm. Well, he wasn't planning on us having this yeah. and we have it. And I, I think ultimately he didn't think people would learn actually Egyptian at the time. No one could test him in, in North America. Um, it's a book called By His Own Hand Upon Papyrus, A New Look at the Joseph Smith Papyri, Charles Larson. Yeah. Uh, this is a book I think any, anybody could read out yep. there. It's not too technical. Uh, and it will show he doesn't get anything ultimately right. And if you think, well, Hugh Nibley's really smart. He does it. And I, I mentioned this point before. We can, eventually we can get to Nibley. But the, the point is, yeah, he'll write thousands of pages or whatever it is. And I read every page of it, uh, sad to say. And... Um, you know, what What he does is not deal with the ultimate question, is it a translation? Like, yeah. do, do you look at the papyrus and then look at the book of Abraham and it's the same? Yeah. Even with the picture, if you read it, like in an LDS quad, it's referencing the, the facsimile pictures, right? And saying, this is what this means, or, uh, you know, this was me on the couch and stuff like this. Uh, the, the papyrus doesn't even date to the time of Abraham. It dates 2,000 years later depending on how you date Abraham, which is a difficult thing to do. But we have a hard date for this papyrus. It has not, I mean, it's just, yeah. I mean, there's no, he doesn't get anything right. Where we can yeah. test Joseph, he doesn't get anything right. But he's going to lecture all Christians, and on some of this, Jews as well, mm-hmm. right? About saying we're heathen and dumb because we don't get our own revelations and we're not as smart as he is. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, really, he likens himself to being 
a modern Jesus on the earth. Um, and we're going to see that start to come through as we move through this talk. I mean, he has a, he, he, he likes to use all the imagery that, uh, that makes him the Jesus figure in, uh, in all this. And that's of course why you should listen to him and trust him. And, and that's the reasoning working itself out of, you know, the, the father had to do this and Mm -hmm. Jesus had to do it. And so I have to do it as well, but let's just, let's just be honest. Was Joseph Smith as upright as Jesus? Um, he thought he was, but we can actually test, we can test his life. We can look at his history and objectively say this wasn't a sinless man, but just, uh, just keep following along here. Here we go. Next section. The church being purged. I have reason to think that the church is being purged. I saw Satan fall from heaven, and the way they ran was a caution. All these are wonders and marvels in our eyes in these last days. So long as men are under the law of God, they have no fears. They do not scare themselves. I want to stick to my text, to show that when men open their lips against these truths, they do not injure me, but injure themselves. To the law and to the testimony, for these principles are poured out all over the scriptures when things that are of the greatest importance are passed over by the weak-minded men without even a thought, I want to see truth in all its bearings and hug it to my bosom. I believe all that God ever revealed, and I never hear of a man being damned for believing too much, but they are damned for unbelief. They found fault with Jesus Christ, because he said he was the Son of God, and made himself equal with God. They say of me, like they did of the apostles of old, that I must be put down. What did Jesus say? Is it not written in your law? I said, Ye are gods. If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said I am the Son of God. It was through him that they drank of the spiritual rock. Of course he would take the honor to himself. Jesus, if they were called gods unto whom the word of God came, why should it be thought blasphemy that I should say I am the son of God? There you go. Wow. All right. We don't have much time to comment on this section. we got to move through the rest of this pretty quickly. But what do you got here? Okay. Well, um, of course, it is interesting that the average LDS might know Psalm 82 and Jesus quoting it in John 10 without maybe even having read this. Yeah. And so it is just it, – it, anyway, this is where it is. I, I, there's a lot to say here, right? There is a range of views on Psalm 82 and Jesus' utilization of Psalm 82, a range of different Christian views. Um, let me just throw one out there that I agree. Some, some will lean into human judges. Some will lean into kind of an angelic realm, right, a supernatural realm. I will say this. Uh, if you want to read, I think, a good exposition based on the human judges view, uh, D.A. Carson. Um, but... Here's, here's what I think is, is happening here, and this is why it's key. If you look at the whole pericope, the whole section, right, he's, he's saying, I and the Father, we are one, right, in, in salvation, which... Yeah, and this is out of John... John 10. Yeah, John 10, starting verse 30. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but if you look at it, that, right, that's the claim. Now, the primary meaning of that, of course, is in salvation, but if you know that only God saves, there is... Uh, a Trinitarian point to be made by implication. Um, And it ends with him saying what? You may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. What? The Father in me and I in the Father. 
And then what do they try to do? They try to stone him, right? <laughs> um, and it's so they, they pick up the stones to stone him. He cites this. And I think what he's, what he's saying is that in Psalm 82, you do have this category of sons of God that are not of this world. Mm-hmm. And then once he's, he links that to him and the Father, right, then you start to see that it's actually, it's not him saying, I don't think he's, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm leery of the human view, even though that's probably the predominant view, is that, uh, to, to be clear, is that it doesn't support the div- claim of divinity, and it doesn't make sense to the reaction. He's not saying, hey, cool down, I'm a son of God like you are. Yeah. What he's saying is, that, no, there's this category that he's identifying with, and then once he links it to the Father, he's saying, I'm over that. Mm-hmm. And that's why they say, you know, they pick up stones, right? Saying, you being a man, make yourself God. Yep. So they see something not more than human going on. And that's, that, that's my case for that. I don't know if you have something to say there. Like I said, if you, want, if you want a different faithful Christian view that a lot of Christians have, I think D.A. Carson's commentary on John is a good example. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm definitely in the uh, less than um, majority view <laughs> as yeah. well on that one. Uh, yeah, I do, I do think that we under, tend to undersell the um, spiritual realm and just how present it is in the minds of biblical authors as they write. So, um, yeah, that, I mean, that is, that's the same position that I, okay. I take there. And, and why that's key too, relative to the heathen God's point yes. that he already made is it doesn't work together. Yeah. So notice how he's reading first Corinthians eight and really you got to look at 10 as well. And then look at how he's using here. See, they all understand there's only one God. Yeah. Right. And yeah. that God, right, is the Elohim who decrees right, right. against the, the yeah. false gods, the, yep. whether they're demonic entity, angels, yes. whatever, of Psalm 82. So meaning they're sensitive to someone identifying as the one God. Joseph Smith's whole point is to get rid of the distinction at all. Yeah. Yep. The, the Pharisees in this passage are closer to us yep. than either of us are to what Joseph Smith is teaching. That's right. Yeah. The, the Jews would have understood the spiritual realm to be a sort of higher realm and the entities of that spiritual realm to have a sort of greater power. But then they very clearly distinguish between the highest of the spiritual realm, which is the God who created all of those entities, all of those spirits. And so um, they're all subject to him. And that's, yes. uh, that's one of the common themes. And, and of course, I, I do think that this plays out even in their understanding of the whole world and all the different false gods they I think they believed had these spiritual entities behind them, but those were created spiritual entities. Yes. And of course, the New Testament authors would come to uh, even reveal to us in the text that we're going to rule over those entities as humans one day. And so though our position may be lower, um, because we are in Christ, who is the exalted one, and he will uh, bring us into heaven with him, we will, in a sense, rule over those other spiritual entities with him ruling as our king um, in the next life. So anyway, yeah. that, that's maybe a little bit of a tangent. No, but I think it's actually key because as, as you're talking, I'm, it, it's dawning on me too that one thing that should be pointed out, the distinction even between the supernatural entities and, and humans Right, yeah. that that doesn't exist in Mormonism either. Right, angels, yeah, angels in Mormonism are either pre-mortal That's or right. post-mortal yeah. people. You will never be an angel. 
Um, right. According to the scriptures. You'll be like the angels, Jesus says. He doesn't yeah. say you're going to be angels. Yeah. And and so what is exceptional in this passage in terms of Jesus identifying himself with the Son of God supernaturally, yeah. who is there in flesh as a man, but equal to God. Uh, yeah, that's what we believe. He's make Joseph Smith is making normal and applying it to himself. Look, Jesus, if they were called gods unto whom the word of God came, why should it be thought blasphemy that I should say I am the Son of God? That's Joseph Smith speaking of himself. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, we got to keep moving here. So let's go. Maybe. Eternal glories. Go and read the vision in the Book of Covenants. There is clearly illustrated glory upon glory, one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and a glory of the stars. And as one star differeth from another star in glory, even so do they of the telestial world differ in glory. And every man who reigns in celestial glory is a god to his dominions. By the apostates admitting the testimony of the doctrine and covenants they damn themselves. Paul, what do you say? They impeached Paul, and all went and left him. Paul had seven churches, and they drove him off from among them, and yet they cannot do it by me. I rejoice in that. My testimony is good. Paul says, There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. They who obtain a glorious resurrection from the dead are exalted far above principalities, powers, thrones, dominions, and angels, and are expressly declared to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, all having eternal power. These scriptures are a mixture of very strange doctrines to the Christian world, who are blindly led by the blind. I will refer to another scripture. Now, says God, when he visited Moses in the bush, Moses was a stammering sort of a boy like me. God said, Thou shalt be a God unto the children of Israel. God said, Thou shalt be a God unto Aaron, and he shall be thy spokesman. I believe those gods that God reveals as gods to be sons of God, and all can cry, Abba, Father, sons of God who exalt themselves to be gods, even from before the foundation of the world and are the only gods I have a reverence for. John said he was a king, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. O oh, thou God who art King of kings and Lord of lords, the sectarian world, by their actions, declare, we cannot believe thee. The old Catholic Church traditions are worth more than all you have said. Here is a principle of logic that most men have no more sense than to adopt. I will illustrate it by an old apple tree. Here jumps off a branch and says, I am the true tree, and you are corrupt. If the whole tree is corrupt, are not its branches corrupt? If the Catholic religion is a false religion, how can any true religion come out of it? If the Catholic Church is bad, how can any good thing come out of it? The character of the old churches have always been slandered by all apostates since the world began. The Lord will not acknowledge traitors. I testify again, as the Lord lives, God never will acknowledge any traitors or apostates. Any man who will betray the Catholics will betray you, and if he will betray me, he will betray you. All men are liars who say they are of the true church without the revelations of Jesus Christ and the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is after the order of the Son of God, 
It is in the order of heavenly things that God should always send a new dispensation into the world when men have apostatized from the truth and lost the priesthood. But when men come out and build upon other men's foundations, they do it on their own responsibility, without authority from God. And when the floods come and the winds blow, their foundations will be found to be sand, and their whole fabric will crumble to dust. Did I build on any other man's foundation? I have got all the truth which the Christian world possessed, and an independent revelation in the bargain, and God will bear me off triumphant. I will drop this subject. I wish I could speak for three or four hours, but it is not expedient on account of the rain. I would still go on, and show you proof upon proofs. All the Bible is equal in support of this doctrine, one part as another. All right, that's the whole thing. So let's finish it up. What uh, what things do you want to highlight here? Wow. Well, um, of course, there's a lot. I'll try to uh, jump over a few I have here. One thing, he brings up Paul and does the, right, one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. Keep in mind, remember even last, I think we mentioned it in the past, um, the recent conference where Oaks gives his kingdoms of glory he says the Apostle Paul describes the three degrees of glory, likening them to the glory, sun, and moon, and stars. And yet, no, no, the whole point in verse 40, right, is comparing celestial and earthly. Celestial and earthly. And uh, so he, Oaks goes on. He does not name the lowest, but a revelation of Joseph Smith added its name. And we looked at how telestial, um, I think it was ridges, I, th I think it was, who said, oh, you know, some scribe took it out. Joseph Smith fixed it. Um, so anyway, um, and this says, Paul, what do you say, right? But it's really Paul as, quote-unquote, fixed by Joseph Smith. Um, so anyway, moving on, he, he does, and notice he, how he kind of sneaks it in. Of course, it's, it, it makes sense of the logic of the whole sermon, right, where he says, we're expressly de declared to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, all having eternal power. So even if someone's like, oh, no, they want to distinguish by power. No, no, no. All having eternal power. So, I mean, he very clear here. And then, of course, he goes into the, you know, we're blindly led by the blind, right? The, the scriptures are a mixture of strange doctrines to the Christian world. He's the one only honest enough to see it if he can fix it and if it agrees with his revelations, right? So this line has to be repeated. Sons of God who exalt themselves to be God. By the way, has there been any grace in this sermon? No. Sons of God who exalt themselves to be gods, even from before the foundation of the world, right? And are the only gods I have a reverence for. Catch that? Only gods who have exalted themselves are who Joseph Smith has reverence for. Right? It's There it is. Now, this line might be a little interesting. I'll um, skip the next paragraph into the next paragraph because it can kind of seem contradictory if you don't see what's going on here. I do have a little bit on this, and I think it's interesting. Um, he says, the old Catholic Church traditions are worth more than all you have said. And, of course, it's a little vague as to the you, but his critics, right, who are typically uh, Protestants or Mormons who disagree with the new doctrines, right? And he then gives this analogy of a tree, right? But then he seems to defend the old churches, right, against uh, apostates, right? Since the world began, by the way. Interesting. And then he um, talks about the Lord hates traitors and apostates. Of course, 
that's who he's dealing with in his mind. And so, of course, his he even though he says uh, Lord and God singular <laughs> here, uh, that's clearly God's highest priority is what's Joseph's highest priority here. And he says, any man who will betray the Catholics will betray you. Um, one thing to catch, because it seems a little counterintuitive, is the fact that um, often the apostasy narrative at this time would express preference for Roman Catholicism, um, which, yeah, kind of kind of weird. Uh, it's not exactly the McConkie view that might be more familiar to the Christians listening. But even B.H. Roberts, he, he says, quote, that the Reformers, quote, left more truth in the Catholic Church than they brought out with them. Kind of interesting. So Catholicism kind of operated as a rhetorical tool against the people they're more concerned with. As, as Protestants. And it's, um, it, I mean, it's kind of interesting. You see this kind of tree branch analogy used by Parley Pratt, a, a man named Benjamin Winchester, who wrote in 1843, a, a long title, A History of the Priesthood from the Beginning of the World to the Present Time, Written in Defense of the Doctrine and Position of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Oof. That's the title. Yeah. And he, he does the same kind of, kind of thing. And, um, and what it, how it functioned was, hey, that's where you got your stuff from. And yet there's stuff there that seems even more true in their view. Um, kind of interesting. In fact, uh, that man, Winchester, he went in so far as to say that the number of the beast, 666, represented the number of Protestant churches. Because mm-hmm. it, right, and it, they're connecting it to, okay, yeah, okay, Catholicism is bad, but look at you guys. Right. I yeah. mean, you, you guys can't do your own independent thinking, clearly, because you would agree with, with us. So, anyway, you see that actually right in this quote where one sentence seems to be defending Rome. And then the next seems to be attacking it as the root of the problem. That's how it's functioning rhetorically. So, yeah, it's kind of an interesting point that might be missed by some if they were just to read through it. Um, And then he turns it to the point that he cares about more, apparently, which is apostates. Now, um, this is is interesting. The order of heavenly things um, is why God, singular, um, will always, in a new dispensation, kind of interesting... um, lenses through the Bible right here of seeing this need to restore uh, not just now, but in the past, right, in these previous dispensations, when they have apostatized from the truth and lost the priesthood. And that's key. We, we um, I kind of um, realized this point more and more. If you, if you were to listen from the beginning of the podcast, I started to realize I need to emphasize this a little more, that they saw the la- lack of the priesthood leading to a corruption of the truth. And those things are connected in the LDS mind, uh, which is why even if there's truth issues, where will some LDS lean into the priesthood authority they imagine they have because of the truth, the church? So don't miss that kind of double whammy for them. Those things are very connected. And then, of course, what does he say? But when men come out and build upon other men's foundations, that there's a quote I won't get to, but they, they say Calvin and Luther. That's what they're doing mm-hmm. uh, in their view. Just yeah. interesting. Oh, yeah. uh, they do it on their own responsibility without authority from God. There you go. See, he, he says, this is my faith. He, very individualistic in how he views his authority, but he criticizes others for doing it. But what's the difference in his mind? Well, without authority from God, singular. Why do you keep the singular? I don't understand this. Why keep the singular at all? And he says explicitly, did I build on any other man's foundation? I thought that was kind of ironic given what Ephesians 2 says and even how LDS will use the, the passage today. Right. His point is, not at all. Got it directly from God. And this is something that uh, is, the more you study early Mormonism, the more you see it. Um, 
that um, the, the, the sociological makeup of early Mormonism was very much primitivist. But once again, the primitivism in America was the idea we need to restore the early Christian church, right? Because mm -hmm. those churches in Corinth and Galatia were so perfect and ideal, right? So, <laughs> I mean, you literally have to say, those denying Jesus came in the flesh, you have to get, them, get rid of them. Yeah. That was an issue? Yeah. So anyway, so they imagine a purity in the past. They project it in the past. They want to restore it now. Imagine all corruption in between. And here's the difference. And you have both featured in certain LDS claims. There are those who saw the, the means by which to restore it as the New Testament. And it, and it was New Testament. The, the, the way they saw the Bible was an extreme fulfillment um, with the old. So you wouldn't study the old for this. You would mm -hmm. study the new. So, but Scripture would be sufficient as a means to do so. But it would be a de novo still. So it's still restorationism. That's not primarily what Smith and his family and a lot of these people are. There's, a, there's, there's some of that. Uh, especially Sidney Rigdon, and and you see that even in other strains of Mormonism after Joseph dies, and there's a crisis over authority. But really, it's Sikhism. Sikhism, right? This extreme charismatic. It's not just charismatic. It's this extreme form of charismatic, right? That sees the need for the spiritual gifts to be restored now because the Bible is insufficient yeah. to do so. And here's one of the clearest moments, I think, even at the end of his life, that this is still informing how G Joseph Smith sees this, this issue, that even though he's using the Bible, where does he begin and end? I mean, yes, he begins by reading it, but where is his truth claims? Once he starts getting into his distinctive theology, where does he lean? Into his own revelations, having... Right, that be the basis by which to restore. And then, oh, look, if you read the Bible the way I read it, you see that I am restoring this thing. Yeah. So that's that's in there. And I think it's, it's something that, once again, you, you know, someone might just read right past, but it's really key to see the pulse of Mormonism because I think that pulse is still there. Yeah. It is still there. And, and when you continue that restoration claim and, and make it an ongoing thing, it becomes a daily revolution. Mm -hmm. You might... I, I'm throwing in some political terms there for some of those who are clued into this point. A yeah. daily revolution, because nothing can ever be pure enough. Yeah, yep. That's good. Man, we're out of time. Okay. So, that's that. Next time, Holland, and yeah. a little more on Joseph Smith and Creeds. Yes, yes, absolutely. And uh, that'll be really helpful because, um, again, as we mentioned, Holland addresses the Creeds directly in his talk. So, we can see, is this something that has uh, kind of come about in time, or is this something that was there in an LDS way of thinking from the beginning? So, thanks for joining us, and we will see you next time.